you know, when you're 22 and 23 and you're managing a team of individuals that the majority of them are, are, are probably going to be older than you. I had to figure out uh, how I could get the team to buy into me and to follow me. And I, I, I learned a lot when I was the head of Buster is that having people follow or subscribe to you because of your title does not work. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. And I want to start today's conversation by telling you a story. It was a handful of years ago now that I went to Bourbon Steak in Nashville. And Bourbon Steak is part of one of the largest privately owned restaurant groups in the world called the Mina Group. And I knew that walking into it. I also knew that Bourbon Steak is really in an incredible location in Nashville because you take the elevator all the way up to the top floor of the Marriott in downtown, which is one of the, if not the tallest building in all of Nashville. And you get up there and you've just got this incredible environment. And I sat down and proceeded to have one of the most outrageous, remarkable, creative, uh, just mind-blowingly good meals uh, I've ever had, quite frankly. And and the meal was good, but then also what complemented the meal so so perfectly was the service experience that I had. I mean, I got to meet and talk with so many of the servers that came by our table, whether it was the main server or the assistant server, or got to talk to the hostess as we walked into the restaurant and had so many conversations with them. And I was just blown away at the level of intentionality and humanity and personality and competency that each of them displayed and the incredible eye contact and awareness of recommendations and curiosity about what I was interested in and what I liked and what brought me into the restaurant. And and it was just overall this incredible experience. And it was towards the end of the meal that I had this realization that I was in that restaurant and I had had that incredible experience that night. And I looked around and every single table was full with other people that had had the same caliber and quality of experience that night. But there were two people that weren't there. The first was Michael Mina who was the founding leader and CEO of this organization that had gone on to plant 40 other restaurants just like it at the same caliber and degree, manifesting in different ways, different genres of food and things served and environments for sure. But then the other person that wasn't there was today's guest, Patrick Umel, because Patrick Umel is the president of that organization, the MENA Group. And together with Michael and their incredible team, They've become not just effective at creating a great restaurant experience, which that in itself is mind-blowingly difficult to do. And if you want to know how difficult that is, just look at the stats on failure in the restaurant industry. They've figured not just how to do it once, but they figured out how to reproduce those results in such a way that the results can be achieved even when they're not in the building. And it was in that moment that two things happened. Number one is I said, man, I want to learn everything I can from Patrick and Michael and their team. And then I said, number two, I want this to be people's experience with Path for Growth. 
that it doesn't just have to be that Alex or Zach or one of our leaders is on a call for them to have an exceptional experience that whenever any customer engages with our organization in any way, any level, whether it's on a podcast, whether it's in person, whether it's on a workshop, whether it's on an office hours call, whether it's in a one-on-one coaching call, whether it's on a group call, or whether it's in something we haven't even created yet, I want them to have the same caliber and quality of experience that they would with any of the leaders in our business. And and what that trip to Bourbon Steak showed me is it showed me it's possible. But one of the things we all know is that just because it's possible doesn't mean it's guaranteed and it never happens accidentally. It always happens intentionally. And so in so many ways, my conversation with Patrick today is about the topic of scaling excellence. But in order to understand his passion for that topic, we have to understand his story. You know, when I was 16, I started busing uh, tables and I was a uh, busboy, delivery boy at this corner store in Delhi in uh, Las Vegas. And it was, it was a great job because I, you know, I worked three or four nights a week. I could drive my Jeep around and do, drop off food and deliver it and clean up tables. And it, it, it was, it was pretty cool, but it gave me, you know, a little, it, what, you know, what it really did is it, it allowed me to put, uh, I worked in a restaurant on my resume. And so it's, um, it's always kind of tough to get that yeah, foot in the door, you know, when you don't have experience and you've got to really convince people to take a chance on you. So when I was 18, though, I moved to San Diego to gain residency, ultimately to transfer to UCSD because my dad wanted me to become a doctor um, and study biology. And, um, and after a, a little bit of time, I realized I didn't, did not have that in me. It wasn't what I desired. It wasn't my passion. And so very shortly after uh, moving to San Diego, you know, a semester and a half or so, or semester two, after living in San Diego, I decided to move back to Las Vegas. And, you know, I wanted to be with my friends. And Was food on your mind at that time? Like, I mean, I feel like food is on the mind of every 18-year-old, but like, were you passionate about it yet? Not really. I mean, I tinkered around and would, you know, try to make dinner. And, you know, growing up, my grandfather always made this, this, he grew, he was a, a Italian and Irish and he grew basil in his garden. He always made what he called green spaghetti and it was, it was pesto. And so, um, when I was 18 and, you know, living on my own, I, I, I would, you know, start making that for myself or some friends and our dates or whatever. And that was kind of probably like the first dish I started trying to make. But when I moved back to Vegas, I needed to get a job. And so I started working at a restaurant as a busboy. And it was, you know, at the time, it was a very busy and popular restaurant in the forum shops at Caesars Palace. And it was amazing. It was electric. I, I, you know, I played uh, team sports my whole life. And, you know, at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities for people, adults, you know, that weren't playing at the collegiate level to be able to be part of a team. And so that's what I instantly liked is I loved that it was, you know, me and the other busboys and it was like us versus the dirty dishes. And it was like, you know, who could carry (laughs) the biggest trays and who could, you know, who could cheese and pepper the most tables. And it was every night it felt like we were goose and maverick and, you know, we're high fiving and it, it was just amazing. And about four months, five months into it, the head, the head busser left to go open another restaurant and they made me the head busser. 
And what's wild, and this would, I can't imagine this would ever happen today, but what's wild is as at Busser, my responsibilities included writing the schedule. So I wrote a schedule for about 26, 27 other bus boys or bus girls. Um, I would make the floor plans for the evening and assign stations out to the, uh, the different, um, the bussers. I would be part of the interview process for new hires. I, uh, uh, assisted and wrote out the training curriculum and training syllabus, uh, for the new hires. And I, I had a, a lot of kind of, you know, a leadership responsibility at 18, 19 years old. And so then I started becoming kind of enamored with that organizational leadership management um, part of the uh, of the restaurant business, and I was good at it. Can I ask you a question there, real quick? What were the strengths or gifts that you had that made you good at it? And like within that role too, what were the lessons that maybe you had to learn the hard way? So what made me good at it was I was a good I was a good busser, and I still to this day I, I, I you know would, I, I throw the challenge to any other busser in the world. To I still am uh, probably the world's <laughs> best busser, but I was a great busboy. I was I was, you know, and I was able to understand the tools and the, the kind of the techniques and the strategies that made me good, and explain that to the other team members. And so we were able to, and we had this this headset of being a team and really trying to win the game on a nightly basis. And so because you know. And I, I got I got to say that I did have some exposure to some great uh, mentors and, and leaders that were within the organization that were managers. A uh, gentleman by the name of John Maloney, um, we used to uh, call him Lombardi because he ate, breathed, and, and slept Vince Lombardi. But two, he he taught us a lot of that kind of team leadership, team dynamic, small improvements, you know, systematic uh, structure uh, approach to things. And we just emulated that as, as bussers. And to the point where we would have meetings every other Saturday morning. And if you were late for the meeting, there, you know, you were either you had to you, you were assigned to polishing duty for a week or there was, you know, re- repercussions to being late for the meeting. So for me and a couple of the other guys, if we went out on Friday night, we would just come back to the restaurant and sleep at the restaurant for fear <laughs> of being late for the meeting. That's the mind of a 19 year old. You don't think about like, maybe we should not go out on Friday night. It's just, oh, we'll just sleep at the restaurant afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Things are much different now. And so I, I really got exposed to a lot of leadership philosophies and a lot of organizational structure and systems. And then I became a corporate trainer for the company and went around and helped open and teach other bussers at, uh, in, you know, different locations like Indianapolis and Irvine, et cetera. And then when I was 21, I, they made me a food server. And so I was no longer the head busser, uh, but I was a food server. And I started learning about food and about wine and about beverage. And I started falling in love with that. And I lived with a group of uh, a, a group of guys and we were all either waiters or busters at the restaurant. And instead of like going out and partying every night, we would have blind wine tastings and we would cook recipes and try to pair wine with the recipes. And we would quiz each other on the menu. And it just really kind of uh, bred this love and passion for learning about food and learning about wine and you know the best way to, to learn about it obviously you can study it is to explore and to eat and to taste and to try and so that really kind of lit a fire in me and then when i was 22 23 
they made me a manager. And so this kind of ladders back to the question you asked about like kind of the, the opportunities or kind of some of the mistakes I made to learn. And what, uh, you know, when you're 22 and 23, and you're managing a team of individuals that the majority of them are, are, are probably going to be older than you. I had to figure out uh, how I could get the team to buy into me and to follow me. And I, I, I learned a lot when I was the head busser is that having people follow or subscribe to you because your title does not work. It's short lived. And that's, you know, I think I learned that from from busing and, and the Godfather, right? You know, I wanted to be more like Vito Corleone than Michael Corleone. <laughs> and I wanted people to endear me and love me and, and want to follow me rather than be, be, be scared because of title. And so as a 22, 23 year old manager, I said, okay, how, how, what are the, what, what can I do that will in, get the team to want to buy into me, to want to follow me? And so I knew I could work hard. I knew I could show them that I could do the technicalities of the job, whether, you know, and, and within the four walls of the restaurant, I knew I could work hard and come in earlier and leave later and, and do those things. But I also wanted something else. And so I started just learning and devouring everything I could about food and wine and spirits and, and service and taught. And I started sharing that with the team and I learned more than they knew so I could give them something. And so I quickly started becoming, you know, looked up to within the restaurant because I was sharing and teaching and helping them grow. And then because of that, they, they were like completely into, you know, following me and, and bought into what I said. And it wasn't because it came from a place of who is this young guy. It was because, wow, this person truly cares about my growth. And also they really know what they're talking about. And so then I started, because of that, I started branding myself within that organization as this, this, you know, young guy that was very well healed and well schooled in all things, food, beverage, and service. And I almost position myself as, you know, an expert of sorts. So, I mean, uh, at, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I was an expert now, but you know, at, back then, you know, everybody would, a lot of people would come to me and ask my opinion on, on different things as it pertained to that. So then, you know, kind of fast forward, I became a general manager by the time I was 25 and they, uh, they put, actually it was kind of by happenstance because, they were going to close a restaurant and they were trying to sell it or get the lease bought by somebody else. And so they wanted somebody they could trust. I'd worked for the organization for seven years at this time. Um, they wanted to be able to, you know, know that product wasn't walking out the door and that we were also trying to mitigate you know, any type of expenses and big capital expenses and just kind of, you know, trim down the operation as best as possible. But at the same time, they said, hey, there's no rules. Whatever you want to try, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. And so I, I, you know, kind of flipped the script uh, a bit in terms of what kind of the corporate protocols were and what, you know, uh, all the corporate standards were. And I, I created different beverage programs and wine programs. And I did a, a, some, you know, different things with the physical elements of the restaurant. And all of a sudden, we started just gaining real good traction with that restaurant. So much where after a year, they decided it was now producing a, a pretty good profit. They weren't going to sell it or uh, get out of it any, any longer and decided to keep the restaurant. And it was really because we thought outside the box and just kind of started ideating and creating uh, ultimately what would produce the best results for that restaurant. 
And that's where I met Michael. That's what I was going to ask. And, and one, one more thing before we get to your relationship with Michael starting too. like, I mean, is it fair to call kind of what you and the team did there at that restaurant that they sent you to like a turnaround? Would do you think about that as a turnaround? No, absolutely. It was a turnaround for the restaurant. It was a turnaround. I think it also then, you know, sent loud messages throughout the organization in terms of, hey, let's think outside the box with some of these things. Let's, you know, how can we emulate some of the success that they're experiencing at that restaurant and some of the other restaurants? And it was absolutely a a turnaround. And we really created a special culture. And I think that you know, I'm still in contact with a lot of the team members that were there. And they went on to, uh, when I went on to work with Aqua and with Michael, they came and, and worked there as well. And we really created something pretty special. You know, I'm really proud about that time. Okay. So I, my assumption is that just given the position that you're in now and the career that you've led, that's not the only time that you've uh, had to pull off a turnaround in some ways and that you've taken something that's not a great situation and moved it in a new direction, whether it's culturally or financially or organizationally and operationally. Are there any core principles whenever you come to that topic of turnaround that you think about or often finding yourself uh, advising others on? Um, Any come to mind there, Patrick? It seems very simple and silly, but I mean, in in order to write a ship or in order to have impact, it's not a one person job. It's, it's really through others and through and really through uh, serving others and creating a culture. You can go in and you can create change and, and put policies or systems in place. But if you don't have a, a group, a team of people that believe in it and that share the values and not only share the values, but actually um, are custodians uh, of those values, are custodians of that legacy, and actually add value to the organization. If you don't have uh, th- those individuals, you're, it's a fool's errand, right? So it, always 100%, uh, you know, whenever you're trying to make an impact or turn anything around, it's, it's completely reliant upon the culture and the team that is there, uh, boots on the ground, and your ability to um, one, to not just tell why, but show why, explain why, and have them believe in the why. And if, if you're not able to kind of get to the heart of that, it's you're going to be like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the mountain. You're never going to hit the apex. And, and so you said it was at that restaurant that you then coincided with Michael. And give people, for those that don't know the name Michael Mina, where was he in his career trajectory at that time? And did you know that name at that time? And, and then give us a little bit of a description of who he is now, too, and the way people know about him now. Sure. So one of my mentors at the, the restaurant group I was part of decided to leave and go open uh, a restaurant at the what was going to be the Bellagio Hotel and Casino, um, and the restaurant was Aqua. And I was I was shocked that he was leaving, and I had never heard of Aqua, and I, I never heard of Michael Mina. And so, as soon as he told me um, that he was leaving the company to go open Aqua at the Bellagio, I instantly kind of and this this wasn't I couldn't I, uh, Google search because uh, we didn't have I don't think Google existed. Um, in 1998 or 99. Um, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. But it certainly was, you know, wasn't necessarily available to me. Um, and so I, I went and tried to find as much as I could in, uh, about Chef Michael Mina and about Aqua. And I started just devouring. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is a whole, I, one, I was like, this is a whole new level 
of restaurant. This is, I mean, light years ahead of, you know, what we were operating at. And it was, to me, it, it, it was the Super Bowl. It was the Olympics. It was, you know, the pinnacle of where you could be in the hospitality and food and beverage industry. And I knew, I was like, well, you know, what, I, I, I want to be part of that. I knew, I want to, I want to see what I can, how I can join something at that level. And at the time, Michael was the darling of San Francisco. He was uh, not just a rising star within the city of San Francisco, but on the national scale, he was, you know, starting to, to be considered uh, one of the best chefs in the country. And it was really at that time also that Wine Spectator came out with a, an article. And for the first time ever, there wasn't a picture of a bottle of wine or a vineyard or a winemaker on the cover, it was chefs. And you had Emerald Lagasse and Jean George and Jean Louis Paladin and Charlie Palmer and Todd English and Michael Mina. And I was enamored with, uh, with learning about this, this new world. I was passionate about this, uh, learning about this new world and I knew I wanted to be part of it. And so I had the opportunity to meet Michael. And, you know, I, I was 26 and I think. He was 31 at the time, and we instantly hit it off, and I decided I want to, you know, yes, this is where I want to work and where I want to be, and luckily, he decided that as well, <laughs> although I was probably a little a little too confident and cocky, yeah, you know, 26, and he had to, he had to pull me back and, and, and tone me down a little bit, but that's where, where we met, and, you know, we, we worked together for a few years at Aqua and had the opportunity to open Aqua. And, and just to understand there, how, how many restaurants did Michael have at that time? And then also, this is, I'm a little bit of an amateur whenever it comes to this world. So when he's the head chef of the restaurant, is he also the 100% equity owner of the restaurant? Is he an investor in the restaurant? What does that look like from a business standpoint in terms of his ownership stake and his involvement in the business that is the restaurant. Does that make sense? Sure. So at that time, Aqua Development Corporation had four restaurants, three in San Francisco and one in Las Vegas. And Michael was the chef and president of the company. Um, you know, I, he, I'm sure he had some um, equity share in the company, um, but it wasn't necessarily what he thought he was worth, which ultimately led to him leaving Aqua Development Corporation and starting Mina Group. But there was four restaurants um, getting ready to open up a few more. Um, and like I, like I mentioned, uh, you know, we opened Aqua at the St. Regis and Monarch Beach. And shortly thereafter, Michael decided um, he wanted to leave Aqua Development Corporation and go out on his own and start Mina Group. And he took myself and a few other individuals in order and started Mina Group um, and what happened was was quite interesting, actually. A lot of the restaurants that we had under Aqua, they wanted to be in the Michael Mina business. And so they decided to come with us um, and be part of Mina Group rather than part of the Aqua Development Corporation. And that was kind of how we started, uh, how, how we started to grow Mina Group. When I hear that, it just seems like Michael's clearly a pretty remarkable talent and must be a pretty remarkable person and leader. The fact that it's like when he goes and does something, people follow in some ways. And so I just love to hear from your personal experience, like what are, what are the strengths that he has or what's the gifting that he has that when he goes and creates something, people, people follow like that? 
You know, what's interesting is throughout the past two decades of working very closely with Michael, it's like layer of onion by layer of onion that I've started realizing all the great things and all the tools that he uh, deploys and uses. Obviously, first and foremost, his work ethic is second to none. He's um, driven. He's got a, a, a deep desire to execute at a very high level and isn't the type of person that is just going to sit back and bark out orders. He's actually going to get down in the trenches. He wants to figure it all out. He wants to train and teach the team, and he wants to create the system to support the long-term result. Um, second is he has a amazing knack for understanding the consumer and what the consumer wants um, and actually a little bit more than what they want and how to give it to them in a way that's remarkable um, and consistent. Um, and it's easy to give somebody something that's remarkable once, but to be able to do that and replicate it again and again and again, um, that's, that's truly special. And so he's got a, a, an amazing knack for understanding um, how people want to feel and, and, and really giving it to them. The third thing that he, he gets is he's got – uh, a very unique ability, and I haven't seen it in a lot of people, where everybody wants to feel close to him, and he makes everybody feel close to him. So it's a lot where you know you've got leaders where everybody wants to kind of follow them around, be part of the entourage, so on and so forth. But it, to be able to one attract that, and then two make the investments in each and every single individual, it's it's exhausting. Um, and to be able to maintain very high intensity, intimate relationships with the team, whether it's you know people at the executive level or people at the line level, um, that's that's a, a talent and a knack. And he has always had an ability uh, to to do that very well. And then he has an ability to get everybody to see it, uh, to buy in, and um, whether it's a partner, an owner, uh, a team member, he, he has the ability to, to get people to buy into his belief, to his vision, um, and to not just buy in, but then fully endorse it. They're, you know, not just be convinced, but then, well, all the, actually, now they're advocates and fans in, in, in fully endorsing uh, what his, his vision or his idea was. And then the last one is just complete relentless spirit. Um, you know, just ne- the words give up aren't in the vocabulary, just tirelessly relentless and persistent. And, um, you know, in fact, the, the, the thing that it, the kind of joke is if you, you know, if, if you really want to get Michael to do something, you tell him he can't do it. Um, and that's, that's, you know, guaranteed to get it done. Um, because once you tell him he can't do something, that's all he's going to obsess about and, and try to, uh, try to conquer is, is, is one is getting it done just for his own satisfaction, but then two, to, to kind of prove it wrong to you, prove you wrong. Man, there's so much in that answer. I mean, we could do an entire interview on that answer to say the least, just because there's so much power in there. And I think there's so many of the traits that, you described about him that when I look at the the people we work with, we always say we work with impact driven leaders. It's like they line up in so many ways and it's like, I've got outrageous energy. I am, I mean, I can work anyone under a table is what they would say, right? And, and they just believe so deeply in what they're doing. And, and I mean, some of these people cast vision, like they're talking about three years from now or five years from now, like in present tense. And you almost think that it's already happening. And then you realize, oh, this is their imagination they're talking about right now. Like this is, 
is amazing. But but we we also see how like that that energy and that ability to imagine and cast vision absolutely one of the most God-given strengths I think someone can have from a leadership perspective that if not properly utilized and stewarded can become an incredible nightmare for that person and the people they work with. And, and so are there some, because clearly I walk into any, I've been to so many of y'all's restaurants now, I walk into any of your restaurants and I see a, a living and breathing example of vision that has been stewarded well, right? It's like operationally excellent. It's very organized. People aren't running around with their hair on fire. And so are there some things that you would observe that maybe Michael intentionally did that maybe made sure that he brought organization, system, process, uh, and and stewarded his vision well? Patrick, anything stand out there? Yeah, I think there's a, a few things. Number one is it's surrounded uh, himself with some of the most talented people in the industry. And it's a passion of his. It's a passion of mine to, to you know, I think people are the most important ingredient to, to making an organization work, not just work, but to making an organization be uh, successful and to having, you know, um, championship results. Uh, second is, is system and uh, in developing the system, creating the system, and then, executing the system and holding accountable to the system, right? You, you can't just put a system out there and then expect everybody to follow. You've got to actually work it with them and then make sure that everybody is being held accountable to executing that system. And then three, it's the innate feeling that creating the environment in the culture that we're all part of something special and that we're all contributing to something special and each and every single person and, and, their, and their contributions matter. And, and there's, it, what that creates is an, an insane amount of, of buy-in and responsibility that the individual feels and adheres to because what they, 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 you know, they're part of it and they're doing it. And while I, if, you know, if I don't, if I'm not executing where I need to be, I'm letting myself down. I'm letting, uh, the team down. I'm letting the organization down, and I, you know, and it's the ability to create that feeling that has allowed us to scale the excellence at the restaurants across, you know, as 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 far as we have. And when you moved with Michael to the Mina Group, what was your role that you were stepping into that time? And then also, can you describe what you mean, especially from a working relationship perspective, whenever you say, man, we just clicked? Like, what was it in y'all's working relationship that clicked? And then what role did you step into in the Mina Group? So initially, I was kind of an opening general manager uh, that would go around and help open the restaurants. Um, and institute the culture, institute the systems. Um, and then I became vice president of operations. And then ultimately, I was the president of Mina Group. And, and just recently, we started uh, Table One Hospitality. But um, what, how, the reason why we clicked is, one, is that I, I spoke his language. Um, and I could understand exactly what, uh, what he wanted to achieve. And I was probably um, the one person that uh, didn't that, that would always try to do it right. And so, no matter what kind of crazy idea he had or what type of vision he had, I never thought it couldn't be done. And so I, at, at, you know, worked 
as hard as I could to to make it happen, and never had that kind of never give up spirit, that relentless relentless spirit, and so I was you know a lot you know and you know Michael is this wizard in the kitchen, and he's also this wizard uh, with hospitality and vision and design, and I was able to help bring the the idea to reality um, without kind of questioning. And with, you know, without, you know, kind of saying, oh, we can't do it. It's impossible. I never had, never had, uh, you know, those excuses. And because of that, we just kind of meshed really well together and we were able to accomplish a lot. And then I think we also had the same values as it pertains to nurturing a team and to caring about a team so much as they, you know, they uh, become family. And, you know, when we first started opening restaurants, the you know the cooks learned how to season because Michael showed them how to season. They learned how to set up their station because Michael showed them how to set up their station. The bus boys learned how to bus tables because I showed them how to do it. The waiters knew how to you know uh, review spiel the menu because I showed them and, and taught them how to spiel the menu. And it wasn't you know and, and so we were able to scale intimacy. Uh, within the team at the restaurants. And so they always felt connected. And so because we were able to do that, we had this amazing relationship where I knew, you know, he knew he could trust me. And then obviously I knew I could trust him. And we were able to have a lot of impact um, because we're like, you know, two heads became four, you know? Yeah. I mean that there's, oh gosh, there's so much in that. That's so powerful. I mean, I've told you this, we, we use you and Michael, as an example, when we talk to people about hiring in some ways a right-hand man, because I mean, truly the way you're talking about it right now, I, I just know so many leaders of companies that will literally give their right arm to find the equivalent of a Patrick Umel, right? Like they would like go to bat to find one of those, right? Because they want that person because they have so much creativity. The thing that they lack is systems and processes that are moderated by the same uh, value and commitment to excellence and standard and everything that you're talking about there. And, and so with that, Patrick, there's so many questions that I have on this. I think the first is, do you have any, well, actually, I think the first question that I have is how long did y'all know each other before you became president and you were cooperating with him in that way? I want to say about 11 years. So, so it was quite a while. How long till y'all had the level of trust that you're talking about? How long had y'all worked together till that level of just, man, we are locked arms and we're building this thing together. How long till that was created? Very quickly. Probably within a year. Okay. And so what would you advise both for both sides, for the person that's in your seat, that's looking for, you know, a, a, a wizard of their industry to work with the visionary leader, but maybe they don't want to step out and start something on their own, but they'd love to, to ride, go on a ride with someone that is, or the person that is the visionary leader that's saying, I'm looking for someone that, that can help me build this, that can really, really uh, work with me and that I can work on a team. What would you advise those people to look for or be on the lookout for in terms of, is this a person that I can work with in that capacity? Well, I think first and foremost, it's values. You have to, you know, you have to have the same values. Uh, if, if your values are, I want to, I want to treat people with respect and create a culture that thrives and that the workplace is something that they, they look forward to. And it's a place where people can continue to improve and, the 
other person is like, I just want to make as much money as possible. And I'm going to squeeze everywhere I can and culture and that isn't a value to me, the bottom lines where I value. I don't, I don't know that you're going to be able to create a successful relationship. I think you have to have shared values that are lined up. That doesn't mean one person can't be very good at making a profit and one person can't be very good at creating culture. It's just that, you know, obviously values and skills are two different things, right? You don't have to necessarily share the same skill set. You can have completely different skills, but you have to have you have to have the same values, right? And you take a look at an orchestra, right? The cello player or the trombone player or the clarinet player or the conductor, they all have different skill sets, but they're all playing off the same sheet of music. And that's what values are. It's the same, it's the music that you're playing off of. And so in order for that relationship to be strong and for not only for it to be strong, but in order for it to be able to blossom and flourish and thrive, you have to be playing off the same shit of music and that's values. So that's number one. Uh, number two is there's got to be a level of humility. And I say that because I see it a lot where Pretty soon, even though pretty soon what happens is even though you start off with different skill sets and you, there's uh, different things that one team members focus on or one partner's focused on, the other partner's focused on, if you don't have that level of humility hub- and hubris starts to sink in, you start to then challenge and question others proficiencies or skill sets and think that maybe you might know better and you know and whenever ego and hubris come into the equation it's it's the ride's not going to be much it's not going to be long you know you've got to have humility you have to understand the value and appreciate the value and and really have gratitude for the value that your um your your teammates uh providing yeah that's pretty powerful because i think sometimes I mean, like I, I can speak to this and I've, I have absolutely wandered down that path if I'm not careful and we're all susceptible to pride, but especially if someone's playing that visionary leadership role, it can be really easy to start to read your own press and to start to say, oh, I am a wizard. And to think like, I'm not just a wizard in the kitchen, I'm a wizard everywhere. And and then you stop listening to your team of people that you're paying. And so it sounds like your experience in working with M- Michael is that he's, is it fair to say like he's open to feedback and you all have constructive conflict and collaboration around things where you might disagree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that, that's a, a big uh, important element as well is, is one, being able to have conflict and being able to advocate for certain beliefs or certain views. But at the end of the day, uh, removing the, the ego from it and allowing the best idea to prevail. And then once that happens, fully supporting it, no matter what side of the argument you stood on, making sure you're fully supporting the best and right idea. And, um, and then being able to recover from the conflict. And listen, throughout the you know, 22 years of uh, working together, passions have gotten, you know, high and there's been very intense conversations and arguments and this and that, but we've always been able to recover from the conflict because we had a very strong and solid foundation of trust, because we knew that we shared the same values, because we all, we, we both, I, I knew and he knew that whatever we were arguing for or against came from a place of just wanting the best. And 
you know, if you don't have that, it's, you, it's hard to kind of recover from the conflict. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, our COO, Zach, and in many ways, we've tried to peripherally model our working relationship off of what we've observed from you and the way you work with Michael. And it's like, man, we have some of the most thrilling fights. It's not even funny. <laughs> it's just like, and, and part of why the fights are so good is because I freaking respect the guy so much. And it's like, I think he's really smart. And it's really fun, honestly, maybe in a kind of sadistic way to stand my idea up against his and put the go to war a little bit but but like you said it's because i've got such a trust that it's like man at the end of this we're going to come to a conclusion and then we're both going to move forward and that's been proven so many times um and i just think that that healthy conflict is so rare and demands leadership in order to be created it never happens accidentally so we know that y'all's values were in common Y'all each bring unique skill sets to the table. We've heard a little bit about Michael's skill set and his strengths. What what are what are the skills that you've really focused on honing that you think you bring to the table? Because there are a lot of people that are looking, quite frankly, for a Patrick, right? They want to hire someone like you. What what are the skill sets that they should be looking for? The strengths, the giftings, things like that. I think that obviously, you know, establishing trust and that there's a high currency being traded of of that of of trust that that exists at a very high level um i think that you know you have to one be able to in it you know a lot of times you hear people say oh i we don't have to like the people we work with there you know i you know i'm not hiring friends or i'm not but you know man you spend a lot of time with um with uh, your team and you spend, uh, you know, probably a lot of times more time with your team than you do with your family or your wife or your spouse, or your boyfriend or girlfriend. And I, you know, I, you've got, you know, for me, you've got to look forward to seeing them. You've got to look forward to partnering with them. You've got to look forward to wanting to grow with them and share ideas and to, um, to travel with them. And if I truly believe that if people, when you feel good about yourself and when you feel when your energy is uh, tuned up and you feel positive and are excited, you're going to produce great results. And I find it if you, if you're not looking forward to being with somebody and spending time with them and getting into, into the weeds with them, it's going to be very hard uh, for that to be a successful uh, endeavor, a successful relationship. And, you know, you look at sports teams all, all you know, you, you hear about the locker room, right? And how important the locker room is and, and the energy in the locker room. And you can see some of the most wildly talented teams that have been assembled. But if they don't have that magic in the locker room, it doesn't translate to the field or to the court. And it, you know, it, you have, I think you, you have to love working together. And that's something that I think is very underrated, it, it, you know, and when you're looking for some, uh, someone that you want to be your right hand or your partner, you've got to love working together. You've got to love collaborating with each other. Um, I think also that you've got to understand what are your blind spots? Um, what are some of the things that maybe aren't necessarily 
your strengths and how can you satisfy that and fill that with with your partner and making sure that you know the last thing you want is two of the same skilled and type of individual working together um, because now you all you've done is really create a lot of friction because they're both going to you know they're both trying to achieve the same thing but i think sports always provides us with the, a, a great kind of lesson and a, a great analogies. But if you look at a basketball team, right, you've got a center and you've got a uh, point guard, right? And they've, they, 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 you can't have a team of five centers and you can't have a team of five point guards, right? You've got to have different skills and people have to have different responsibilities and different roles within the organization. And that's how you can create the magic. Um, so those are those are two uh, I, I really believe are of the most important things um, that you should be looking for. It's funny you we could probably literally cop take that clip out and copy and paste it into a marriage podcast, and it would probably no one would bat an eye. They'd be like, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's good marriage advice." As they probably wouldn't even know it was any different. <laughs> so, um, okay, but it's what, like a marriage, right? It, oh yeah, I mean, and that's what I think people don't realize whenever they get into it is how much of a commitment it is, and and what I mean. Yeah, what you're actually looking for. I mean, I, 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 I'm not married. I'm dating someone right now. And I, it's bizarre for me how often I find myself in that relationship referring to what me and Zach do. And I'm like, this feels weird, but it's really <laughs> helpful with Zach whenever I operate this way. So I'm just going to bring it in that way. <laughs> okay, so before we move on from this topic, what are the, the specific skill sets you, you bring to the table in the organization? And, and what are the areas that for yourself personally can be blind spots or weaknesses for you, just the way you are as a professional and the way you're wired, Patrick? So, I, you know, I think um, one of my strongest skill sets is to be able to create uh, culture and to be able to create a spirit and a soul to uh, the restaurant and uh, to the organization, um, to be and, and by doing so, it creates a you know a, a very high level of buy-in. And to, again, I I'm a very firm believer. You know, I, I talk to my you know wife about this a lot when it comes to raising our kids. But you know, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And so, I really want to create the relationship. Um, before we talk about the rules, you know, I really want to, I'm constantly making deposits, um, into that, into the relation bank account, um, before I make withdrawals from the rules bank account. And, um, so I, you know, that's one thing that I, I, I am extremely focused and passionate about. And I think I do a, a really good job of is creating culture and creating, um, creating the soul and the spirit of, of, of the, of the business and of the restaurant. The second is um, it, it, it kind of also kind of is hand in hand with that. And it's a, a tool to actually create that is, is the ability to connect and, um, uh, and serve uh, the team member. Um, whether it be uh, within the restaurant or within life, um, and being and having that willingness and that spirit of, of being able to do so, and um, in so much where uh, you know ultimately I I want I, you know I obviously we want the restaurants to be great and we want the teams to to perform at a very high level, but I want people to perform at a high level outside of work. I want them to 
to win at life. I want them to carry, you know, what we call the champion spirit, which means that you're passionate about being great in everything that you do. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to be great in everything, but if you're doing it, you're going to do it as best as you can. I want, yeah, obviously that works very well in the restaurant. I want someone to go, I'm going to carry the champion spirit into being a mother or into being a sister, or I'm going to carry the champion spirit into my workout regimen, uh, regimen, or to, you know, I'm going, I'm taking classes at night. I'm going to carry the champion spirit into, you know, take, uh, taking those, those courses. Um, because I truly, you know, I, I, I truly believe that, you know, this is, this is my way to have an impact on people, but also ultimately on society. And if I can, Every restaurant has, you know, 50 or 60 team members. If, you know, a good majority of those can go out and just be better humans and better to each other and love and feel, uh, feel happy and content and, and operate at a higher level, then that's just going to continue to put good energy and, uh, you know, and good, good uh, mana into the universe. So there's that. And then I have a very big engine and a lot of bandwidth to, um, to take on, uh, you know, projects and work. Um, but at the same time, I'm able to, uh, you know, get, you know, prioritize, get things done, understand, you know, I, I have an ability to put first things first and to you know, high impact in multiple directions. And then technically, you know, within the restaurant, like I said, I'm the best buster in the world. And so um, I'm able to, you know, throw down with, with you know, with the busters and, and, and get, get in and mix it up. And then I think, you know, lastly is I've got a, a deep commitment and a deep passion and uh, to, uh, for continued development. And I'm a, I'm a student of, uh, but first and foremost, I'm constantly learning, constantly educating myself, constantly um, trying to read more, uh, whether it be about leadership, about being a better husband, about being a better father, about diet and nutrition, about, you know, um, spiritual wellness. I'm constantly, um, you know, trying to nourish myself and nurture myself so I, I can be, uh, you know, that's, I can be the best me that I can be, uh, but also so I can share that with the team and share that with others and be a good resource for that. Man, I appreciate that answer so much. I think so often there can be this perception culturally today that if I ask someone their, what their strengths are, all they'll give you back is just kind of this self-deprecating answer where they put themselves down and they say, well, I'm not really good at anything or I don't really know or I can't really identify anything. And, uh, and I think it's because we think that if we talk about or own or clarify and specify our strengths, we think that that's arrogance. But what I love is you just gave us an answer. I mean, I asked you, what are your strengths? What are your skills? What are your gifts that you bring to the team? You gave us an answer and there was not a single piece that sounded like arrogance. If anything, it just sounded like hyper-awareness. And I mean, Zach and I have talked about this in the time that I've spent with you, like one of the words that I would use to describe you, Patrick, is, man, that guy's just very focused. And, and it's like, well, yeah, no kidding he's focused because he knows what he's good at. And because he knows what he's good at, he can spend his time on those things. And I, I just, you know, I think it's important to call out to leaders that it's not arrogance to be aware that you're good at certain things and then to dive into them. Do you think, like, is that a fair assessment? Would you agree with that? Absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, that one, um, it's... It's not arrogance um, to, to to be able to articulate 
what you're focused on and what you work on and what you achieve. Again, th- those are adjectives. They're not verbs and nouns. You know, those are adjectives that describe you that they aren't you. And then two, you've got to put that out there, whether it's I am statements or whatnot, in order to continue to model that and perpetuate that. And we can talk about the law of attraction or, you know, uh, you know, or how to, you know, continue to, you know, manifest those things in your life. But, um, you know, from you, I, I think to shy away from that and, 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 and to not stand proud of wh- what you're trying to achieve and what you do achieve does yourself a disservice. I think you have to take, you know, you have to, you have to feel good about yourself and you have to uh, stand, you know, firm on what your strengths are and continue to, you know, uh, work on those. But also at the same time, I think you have to acknowledge your weaknesses too. Mm-hmm. And, okay. And that's where I was going to go next is um, the, it's, when someone has the ability to, in a humble way, own their strengths, well, then that probably also gives them the ability to look accurately and realistically at their weaknesses. And so what are the things that you know for you, man, these things have a propensity to be a blind spot for me, or these are things that have showed up in the past that I constantly need to make sure I keep my eye on to make sure that they don't become this this thing that I'm just completely unaware of. You know, what's interesting is uh, probably a lot of my weaknesses um, are weaknesses that I had as a, as a youth um, in, uh, in growing up. And so um, one of one of my weaknesses is confrontation. And it, it, what's always funny is I always get this like pit in my stomach or when I have to, when there has to be kind of either radical candor or tough confrontation, I get, you know, nervous about it or I, you know, either try to try to figure out how to avoid it. And what ultimately always has, whenever I take that medicine and do it afterwards, I'm like, that wasn't so bad. See, um, but I work, you know, I, I tend to work myself up uh, about it. Um, so confrontation is, is, is certainly, uh, something that I'm always working on, and it's because it, because also it's an art. Confrontations it, it's a very subtle art, and you ultimately want to be able to have a good outcome um, where everybody you know, not necessarily feels good about it, but at least everybody ha- you know has a deliverable at the end of it and uh, understands where you're coming from. Um, so confrontation is a big one. I also a weakness of mine is how to critique without being critical um and uh that's something that i have to i work on at home as well as uh you know in the workplace and making sure that your critiques start to become critical and critical is is it, when you're wearing your a, a critical hat uh too often it certainly doesn't um it's not a, a useful tool to help grow and develop uh, and mentor people, but if you wear the hat, if you wear a hat and coming from a position of offering critique, when you, usually when you offer critique, that's in a much more of a coaching manner, um, and so that helps develop create a development plan or helps create um, some you know uh, objectives that uh, and behaviors that need to be accomplished, and so you know um, that's another another weakness, um, and then. The third, and it's actually, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm really working on is vulnerability. And uh, I think it, it's interesting. And it's something that's interesting for us as men. It's, uh, you know, it's 
uh, we're almost taught not to be vulnerable and it almost shows, it, you know, shows a sign of weakness. Um, but, you know, I just actually, I just read a book, um, the cult, the culture code. I'm not sure if you read it. Yeah. That's Daniel Coyle, correct? Yes. But it talks a lot about vulnerability in that, in, in that book. And, um, it's, you know, you know, I think knowing that showing vulnerability doesn't show weakness. It shows, uh, you know, one that you're human and two, and that, that you're, um, you, you come from a place of wanting to improve and to, and sincerity. And you kind of actually invi- are inviting other people to, to know you better. Um, it's, uh, it's actually pretty, pretty empowering and pretty magical. I, um, in fact, I just spent Friday and Saturday visiting my friend Kelly Cardenas. I think I introduced you to Kelly, uh, but he was hosting a men's retreat in um, Park City. And there was about 12 or 14 entrepreneurs, CEOs, um, in, uh, you know, were doing some hiking and some cold plunging and a lot of sharing and journaling and talking and really pouring into each other. And I was just amazed at the level level of vulnerability that these men were sharing with each other it's not something i've had modeled for me before um or i've seen you know growing up and you know uh and it was i was floored i was blown away and it's the biggest takeaway i had from the weekend um and it's certainly something that i'm I'm really working on is it's just you know and it's not just it's at home with my wife, with my children, with my family, my parents, my sisters, it's uh, within the workplace. It, it's such an, it's actually, you know, not just an incredible tool, it's an incredibly empowering. It's actually very freeing and liberating as well. What do you mean by freeing and liberating? I'd love for you to dive deeper. I think a, a lot of times, so what's the opposite of being vulnerable? It's, I think, being closed off and um, being shut off and putting up walls. Um, and I think that when you can kind of, when you can tear, start to tear those down and uh, allow yourself to be more open that, uh, and you're not holding on to those insecurities or those fears, once you kind of get past them, you, you actually allow for you to flourish, whether it's in that relationship or if you think about it, where I tell you, you know, this is something that's been on my mind or on my heart and it's something that's been really troubling me and, I share my fears or I share my concerns with you. Guess what I've just created? One, I've created somebody that's probably going to partner with me and helping to, you know, either by, either by listening, by workshopping or by offering suggestions or somebody that I can just now talk to about those things. So it, you know, it, it's creating a partner in that, but two, it's now kind of removing that obstacle from that relationship. But, uh, so it allows for more gifts and more fruit to come of that relationship. Mm. I appreciate you sharing about this. As someone that is like working, you know, you said you're working really hard to practice this more. How do you practically start bringing this into your role as an executive? Because it can be really hard if it's not something that you've uh, maybe done a ton of previously to then start introducing this. What have you learned about that, Patrick? You know, I think it's being quick to admit mistake and it's okay to make mistakes, right? It's okay to fail. I think we've heard, we've heard a lot, you know, especially in today's, you know, 
whether it's through podcasts or through everybody's, you know, fail quickly and you've heard that a lot. It's okay. It's okay to make mistakes, but if you can admit that to your team, then what you do is you create a circle of trust and an environment of trust where they can also admit their mistakes and you kind of remove, um, remove that from, from the atmosphere. Um, so one, um, admitting mistakes Two, and, uh, talking about your feelings, talking about what you're going through. Um, one of the things that, within our the new organization table one um, that we're doing is we've got these uh, weekly zooms um, that we're calling the water cooler chats and uh, basically I, it's all the people on the uh, on the executive team and the GMs and chefs in the restaurants we get on a zoom and the one thing you can't talk about is work you nothing we don't want to talk about work. But, it, you know, what was going on last week? You know, what did you do? You know, just trying to create this, you know, one, a, a deeper relationships amongst the team, but uh, relationships that exist outside the context of what we're doing from a business perspective. And I know you asked about it in the kind of executive capacity, but I think if you can create better relationships, talking and having dialogue about, well, you know, I started intermittent fasting and I'm, I, I, the first week I lost eight pounds and then I'm, I'm frustrated because the last three weeks I haven't lost anything. You admitting those things to the team and sharing that with your team um, invites other conversations. Oh, okay. Hey, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Or, you know, I, or, you know, I, I've been struggling with, you know, I've been trying to lose uh, a couple of pounds myself, or I've been struggling with my my diet, and da, da, da. or you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, I just bought a new guitar, and you know, this is my, you know, I haven't been able to play guitar in the past year because I've been working on the restaurant so so hard, but now I finally am able to, you know, play guitar, and then that invites, you know, oh, here's one of my, you know, let me send you a text of one of my favorite guitar pieces, or you know. Uh, one of my favorite, you know, you know songs, and it, it just invites more dialogue and more relationship. So that's you know, and again, more dialogue, more relationships, stronger sense of team, stronger sense of family, um, stronger sense of community, which then creates safety. And if we can get, you know, and, and if you, you know, when you read the book, you know, obviously safety, then you eliminate some of those nerves, and it, it provides for creativity and for thriving and for excellence and. That's, that's kind of how it's been manifesting for us lately and for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It really is remarkable. This is something that I've noticed a lot recently. If you get into conversations with people, I think people in general prefer to talk about things that are external. Like we'll talk about, oh, the football game that was on TV. We'll talk about the weather. We'll talk about food, right? Because those things, I mean, in general, they really don't have that much to do with me at all. The minute we start focusing on I was playing a guitar or my opinion of that food, I mean, in some ways, it's like that's low risk vulnerability, but it's still vulnerability because now we've we've turned our, tie, our eyes from out there to in here. And it sounds like that's a little bit of what y'all are doing on the Zoom calls. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I mean, we've done, uh, I want to say we've done it for about six weeks now. And, you know, the texts I get from the team and the different messages about how much they love it and how, you know, what would it, you know, what a great tool it's been and um, have been great. It's been, we've got a lot of good response and feedback. That's very cool. Um, okay, well, you kind of alluded to it. Uh, I, and I'm asking just for myself out of total curiosity, uh, give, us, give us the kind of elevator pitch on what is, what is table one and what is y'all's vision for that and the mission of what you're building there? 
Um, so, you know, obviously we've spent the past 20 years creating uh, the MENA group and creating really um, what I consider to be, uh, you know, one of the top leaders in hospitality and food and beverage uh, nationally, um, if not, you know, if not globally, I think we've been able to create, you know, a, a lot of great success um, and, and um, build restaurants that are relevant and that mean something to their team and mean something to their community and obviously to the owners and the partners. Um, and so throughout that process, we've developed, you know, systems and processes and procedures and uh, that have allowed us to scale excellence. And, you know, Michael and myself have always had a very deep desire to, you know, again, it goes back to people and how do we continue to mentor? How do we continue to grow? How do we give back to the industry? Um, and how do we kind of, uh, you know, open the kimono, so to speak, and, and share all of the infrastructure that, that Mina Group has? And so that's where we've created uh, Table One is it's really a platform that um, is, the, you know, t- takes all of the systems and procedures and the know-how and infrastructure that's built Mina Group and leverages that for other talents, Right for rising star chefs, or even chefs that are are tried and true, but maybe don't necessarily have the ability or infrastructure to continue to grow. And so, Table One is uh, is really focused on on doing that. We've built a, a platform that's helping uh, chefs and and creators around uh, around the country to be able to grow. And uh, we've got you know we just opened uh, uh, you know a couple of restaurants, one in San Francisco, one in Los Angeles, where we've done just that. We've taken you know two rising star chefs that are amazing. One, they're amazing humans, but two, amazing culinarians um, that certainly are going to take the culinary world by storm, and have given them the the platform to to do that. And so. It's it's been it's been great it, uh, so far. You know, we've been having a lot of fun, uh, and it's uh, just a, an incredible opportunity for us and for for these uh, for these chefs. Uh, I love that you use the word fun. What is it about that that makes it fun right now? Like, what's fun for you in that right now? I think it's always fun to start something up. Um, and to get something off the ground, and you know, we have the opportunity. You know, again, you know, uh, obviously, you know, we've got rich history with, with founding and creating Mina Group, um, but we're, we get to do it all again, and, and we can um, avoid some of the mistakes. Um, to, you know, you know, learn from uh, you know different uh, you know different things and and evolve. Um, but also, what's what it's kind of fun is that we've got it we're almost like we have to prove ourselves again and uh there's something about that um that i like there's something about the uh that uh, you know um the feeling of being the rookie and the feeling of of being new with something um and that uh you know with mina group and chef michael mina we can you can go in and instantly you're the expert and um, and everybody's going to not necessarily bow down, but everybody's going to listen to what you're saying. And, um, you're, you know, the oppor- you know, opportunities with partners and stuff are always going to be there where, you know, with table one, we've got to, we've got, we've got to dance a little bit and, uh, we've got, we've got to put on the show and, and, uh, and we've, and prove our, prove ourselves. And to me, 
that's incredibly exciting and incredibly fun um, because, you know, it's a challenge and I love, I love a challenge like that. Yeah. I love that because I mean, it just, uh, we just recorded a Worth It Wednesday video where we were talking about meaning and the ease are often at odds. And it's like, it just, it, you talking kind of highlights the principle for me that, man, you want meaning? Don't chase what's easy. Chase the challenge and and go to the spot where you feel like you're new again and you're having to learn and prove and, and explore and adventure all over again. So that's just so cool. Okay. Uh, before we get to the before we get to the final question, you're the one guest that I always ask this question to. Um, let's do it this way: out of all the restaurants that y'all have now, if if everyone that's listening to this could experience one meal from one of the Mina Group restaurants, which I know is probably the most outrageous question to ask you, but what's the one meal you would want them to have, and where would it be? Wow, that's not fair. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it's also probably yeah, like choosing your favorite child because all all of your people are like, "What the heck? You didn't choose our restaurant." <laughs> I'll tell you that you know Michael Mina at the Bellagio uh, in Las Vegas is uh, truly spectacular and truly special, and the team that is that restaurant's been there for twenty four years. And it still feels brand new and still feels fresh. And the team that's there um, are some of the, I mean, most hospitable, loving, caring people uh, in the industry. And, uh, and the, I mean, the chef Raj Dixit, the food is uh, amazing. So to me, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, one of them. I don't want to say the one. Um, you know, I think Bourbon Steak in Nashville uh, is a, a very special restaurant. And, you know, uh, besides the view and um, how it's positioned, uh, it's, it's incredible. But the team, again, is just so generous and so warm and so friendly and so knowledgeable and caring. Um, that, that's, you know, uh, also one of them. Um, it, Mina's Fish House in, uh, at the Four Seasons in Koalina, it's toes, it, your, your, your toes are in the sand, you're sitting there. Um, looking over the ocean, it's they've got the most incredible sunsets on that side of the island. Um, it's exactly what you picture when you think about your your the, the dream restaurant uh, in Hawaii, and that, and that's it. And again, not just this, the view and the vista and the food, but you've got a, an amazing spirit of aloha that comes from the team there. Um, that's truly magical. And then with you know with Table One, we just opened uh, a restaurant called Mother Tongue. Uh, in Los Angeles, in West Hollywood, that uh, in this restaurant special because it's focused on on optimal wellness um, from a nutritional value without compromising flavor um, and uh, deliciousness. And the team has really uh, put together a spectacular menu. Anything you eat there is going to make you a better human. It's going to make you feel better because of the way we've sourced the product, the way that we're handling the product. It's spectacular. The restaurant's designed amazingly. We sit on the fourth floor and have a beautiful rooftop. But again, we've got uh, an amazing team um, there as well. You know, the chef Fernando is one of the sweetest souls that you're you're ever going to meet. The service team in the front, 
uh, of the house is, is spectacular. So th- th- those are the four, um, you know, that I would urge anybody to go to. <laughs> and I mean, I'll, I'll tell people, I mean, it's one of the things that truly scaling excellence is y'all's secret sauce in so many ways. Like it's, it's what y'all do. And I think it's a, it's a study in operations, in leadership. And then also you just get a, an outrageously good meal. I have made a habit of anytime I'm in a city, I just go to y'all's MENA group uh, website. So we'll put the link to that in, in the show notes of the episode to see if they have one in the city that I'm in, because I'm like, if they do, I'm going to it. So, okay. Final question before we go today is, is there a lesson or principle that you think is just alive and well, maybe it's in MENA group restaurants, or maybe it's in the restaurant industry in general that you think, man, business leaders or business owners in other industries would really benefit from focusing on this lesson or this principle? I, you know, I, again, I think I, I have to go back to the, you know, to the people and the lesson is, is, that every single person on the team matters. And, you know, regardless of what function they're performing, uh, everybody has impact and everybody matters. And I think it's Confucius that said, if you think that you're too small to make an impact, try spending the night in a tent with a mosquito. Um, And it's so true. Every single person in the restaurant has an impact on that guest experience. And we're only, you're only as good as each and every single guest experience. And so you really need to value every single person within the organization, understand how one, how to value them two, how to make sure that they feel valued. And three, how can they get fulfillment out of what they're doing? So they understand how great their contribution is. And when you can do that, when you can tap into that and have people feel like what they're doing means something and it matters and they're part of something special, then you do do that one person at a time. And all of a sudden you've got 10 people feeling that, then 20 people, then 100 people. Um, That's how you can catch magic. That's how you can scale excellence. That's how you can create, uh, you know, a a culture of uh, the champion spirit and a culture of winning. Mm. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and, and more than just for your time today, too. One of the things we talk about all the time on this podcast is like one of the things great leaders do is they have this ability to lift people's eyes 10 degrees above the horizon and just they, they get them to look up. I think you are uniquely good at that. But what's so neat is... I think y'all have created an organization that even when you're not around, like I've been in the restaurant when you're not there and, and we've taken 30 of our customers to one of your restaurants before. And I watched everyone's eyes lift 10 degrees above the horizon and, and they're looking up just a little bit. And, and I just think that that's what y'all create and it inspires me and it inspires the leaders we work with. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very kind and such a compliment. Thank you very much. Well, man, I'm just so grateful to Patrick for his insight, uh, for his humility, and for his passion for the craft that almost overflows out of him. And not just his passion for food and drink, which is evident and visible, but also his passion for the people that make and serve the food and drink. And and I just think that him and Michael and what that entire team has done and what they're fixing to do with Table One is just such an example for all of us who want to lead in such a way that we make a lasting and meaningful impact. And I'll tell you, uh, if you have the chance 
to go to a Mina Group restaurant, I don't care how far you have to drive, you should do it, right? And you should also invite me because I want to go with you. It is just an unbelievable experience. And and when you go, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Get to know your servers because um, those people, they're professionals and they're trained as professionals and they know the inner workings of that business. And if you ask them questions, they'll be able to respond. And so I've had some of the most delightful, interesting, engaging conversations with the servers and the host and hostesses at these restaurants. And so I hope that you'll do the same. Uh, Y'all, if you want more content like this, we send out an email every Wednesday called Worth It Wednesday. That's because I think most email isn't worth it. It's not worth your time or worth your energy. So every Wednesday, we're committed to sending a principle worth learning, a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. You can typically read it in under two minutes. And then we also send a video where we elaborate more on the principle that's at play. So if you want to get on that list, you can sign up at pathforgrowth.com or click the link that's in the show notes of this episode. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.